invite you to turn with me again to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 10. We've been looking at how the Philippian church was tempted toward anxiety, toward worry. Uh, They were facing, of course, if you remember, throughout this book, we've seen this, they're facing various struggles, battles within the church, that is there, that issue with unity that we saw, at the, especially at the beginning of chapter 4, but it's been in the background of so much of what Paul has written. So there's battles within the church itself to maintain that unity, to fight for greater unity and, and, and standing together in the faith. And they're facing opposition from the outside as well. So especially at the end of chapter 1, and verse 29, he says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So there are some battles within, and certainly battles from the outside, some, some persecution and suffering that they're going through. And so they're tempted, we can understand why they might be tempted towards anxiety in the midst of that. But also, it's not hard to see how they may have also been tempted towards being discontent in the midst of that kind of a situation. Discontent comes very easy to us. It's quite natural. It's, it, it comes, it's part of, of the fallen human nature to be discontent. Discontent is really something that it's not brought on by difficult circumstances, but it's often revealed by those difficult circumstances. It's just helped along when times get tough. It's opposite. Contentment is not natural. It does not come, uh, as one author said, pre-installed on our hard drives. It's not uh, part of, of the sinful nature at all. And as we move into verses 10 and 13 of chap- 10 to 13 of chapter 4, Paul addresses this matter as he speaks of contentment. So I want to read that, but we're going to begin, we're going to back up to verse 4. And again, read this together and just remember the, the things we have come through already dealing with this matter of of anxiety. So let's read Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. 
And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now just before we jump into verses 10 to 13, I want to give a definition of contentment. Obviously, we're going to be working that out as we work through verses 10 to 13. Um, but this will just give us something to up front to work with as we do go through these verses. So the definition I'm going to give is from Jeremiah Burroughs, the book that I mentioned earlier that we're going to be reading for Men's Breakfast, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. I haven't found a better definition. I couldn't find a better way to say it, so we'll just borrow from him. So this is what, how he defines contentment. He says, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. So I'll, I'll say that again. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Doesn't that just sound really nice? Doesn't that sound wonderful? Sounds like a great state to live in, to stay in. And yet, of course, it is so very elusive to live there, to stay there, to be rooted there, to have that inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit in every, in every situation. And of course, we will never arrive at perfect holiness. We've seen this back at the end of chapter 3. Paul is making that case. This side of Christ's return or Christ's calling us home, we will not reach perfection. However, this text is making it clear that it is the duty, glory, and excellence of a Christian to mature in Christian contentment. And that... that is the summary of what I would say this, this, these verses are teaching us. And I'm basically borrowing again from Burroughs there. Uh, he says it like this, to be well skilled in the mystery of Christian contentment is the duty, glory, and excellence of a Christian. So we are called to mature in contentment. And it's a good thing. It's a good thing for us. It's a good thing God calls us to. And so we're going to dig into Christian contentment a little more so the first point of our outline is Christian contentment transcends life's circumstances. Christian contentment transcends life's circumstances. Contentment is not something that depends upon our situation and circumstances being just right. Uh, this, this truth is very apparent in this text, especially in verses 11 and 12. But let's, of course, begin with verse 10 and read that again. It says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. So Paul in verse 10 begins a transition here to his gratitude to the Philippian church for their gifts to him. The gifts that they sent with this man Epaphroditus. 
Their concern, he says, for Paul has been revived. It was dormant for a time, but now it has bloomed once again. And yet, just as Paul begins to transition to talk about this gift that they've given and his thankfulness for it, he offers a couple of clarifications, which take us through the second half of verse 10 through to verse 13, before he then returns in verse 14 to talking about uh, the gift that these uh, folks gave to Paul. So in verse 10, he says he's grateful that their concern has been revived. But then he offers this clarification. He says, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So it's not that that first part of the verse is Paul saying, at last, you've, you know, where have you been this whole time? I've been waiting. That's not what he's getting at. And he clarifies that here at the, in the second half of verse 10. For whatever reason that's not explicitly stated, the Philippians just didn't have an opportunity for a, a period of time to show Paul their love through giving to him. So in verses 15 and 16 that we read, if you jump down, Paul is going to note there their past giving to his ministry. When he left Macedonia where Philippi was, they alone entered into partnership with him. They were giving and supporting him. He's talking about their past support. And then in verse 18, he talks about the gifts that they sent to him by Epaphroditus, which would be a, a, recent, uh, a recent matter, probably, what it, as we've said before, prompting this letter of Paul to the Philippians. And so for this period of time in between their giving when he was in Thessalonica, when he left Macedonia, and now Epaphroditus bringing his gifts, there's a period where they had all, all likely had not really had any contact with one another. In between there, Paul had been arrested. He'd gone all the way to Jerusalem. He'd been arrested there. And then he'd been transferred up to Caesarea. And he was there for at least two years uh, between, remember, Felix and then Festus. And then he appeals to Caesar and he ends up getting shipped that adventurous uh, shipwreck trip on his way to Rome where he eventually arrives in Rome under arrest, under house arrest. And sometime after that is when Epaphroditus arrives and now he's writing this letter. So it's been a, a, at least a couple years, maybe three, maybe more than that since Paul has really had close interaction with the Philippian church. Again, we're not told why they hadn't interacted. Perhaps they just had no logistical way of getting Paul help when he was imprisoned in Caesarea. Maybe they didn't really know where he was. This is not the modern age of technology. Things would, uh, information would travel a little more slowly. For whatever reason, they haven't had much contact. And this is why Paul uses this term revive. Their concern has been revived. Of course, all along he recognizes you've been concerned. You just didn't have the opportunity. So he clarifies this for the people. And he's thankful for this gift that they have given to him. And then in verse 11, Paul offers another clarification. If you remember, you can look back to chapter 2 and verse 25, where he talks about Epaphroditus, and he's presenting Epaphroditus as an example of Christian humility in context, and we, we talked about that. Paul called Epaphroditus, the Philippian church's messenger and minister to my need. So the church was aware that Paul had some, some needs, he talks about gifts we'll look at next week. Uh, financial needs, no doubt, perhaps other material needs. And they sent Epaphroditus to deliver this. And this is a wonderful expression of their love and appreciation and affection for this apostle. But Paul also wants to use this now as an opportunity to 
teach on this matter of contentment and just clarify a couple of things regarding his own need. And so in verse 11, he says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstances, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So what Paul wants to make clear here is that his gratitude to them is not because he lacked contentment until finally they came through and gave him what he needed and now he's able to rest because he now possesses uh, what he wanted or needed or lacked or whatever. It, it is true that he had legitimate needs. He calls them that. But at the same time, he was content. And he's wanting the Philippians and now, by extension, us, the readers of this letter, to, to know that, to realize this. Just because Paul had this need, because he lacked some things, it doesn't mean he was a mess about it. It doesn't mean he was upset or angry and, and fretting about it. And that's what he's communicating here. That even though he's in prison, even though he has had needs, even through it, he has maintained some contentment. So again, Christian contentment transcends life's circumstances. He says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And so Paul has learned, he now knows, he says, how to be brought low, that is how to be humbled, and how to abound, how to have abundance. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty, that is being well-fed, and hunger, abundance and need, lacking some things. Most of us can very easily understand that discontentment arises when we lack things, when something's not going our way, when we're missing something we would like to have. That's, I think, easy for us to understand that that, that causes a battle with contentment. But what is harder to grasp, and yet just as essential, is that discontentment is present even in times of abundance. It is present with us in that constant sense of needing and desiring more. Contentment is a heart matter. It is not primarily a matter of circumstances. And so it is, we think, just a little more money. If I just had X, if this situation would just work out in this way, change a little bit, then, then I would ask no more. Then I would be satisfied and happy. And yet this is entirely a lie. We know this because so often we finally attain that thing we wanted. We finally got the circumstances we desired or obtained the items we thought would be so helpful. And there's an initial gladness and satisfaction. And then we know this wears off. The world knows it too. That's why there's always changing everything. You go to a store and it's hardly ever the same from one day to the next. Certainly from one season to the next, it's new. Oh, that's last year's. That's last year's line. We have a new one now. The, the, the world is aware of this. There's this insatiable appetite. Scripture says Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied. Death. And, and never satisfied are the eyes of man. 
This is that fallen human nature. Ecclesiastes 5, 10 and 11, if you remember this when we were in Ecclesiastes, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? This is an insatiable appetite we have for stuff, for things. We think if I just had this money or I had whatever it is, then all would be well. And scripture is clear over and over again. You will not be satisfied. You will reach that point and there will be more to gain. You'll want more. There'll be new problems that will be introduced, etc. The good news is that Christian contentment isn't tied to circumstances. You don't need to to find a certain elusive position or place or income in life in order to be at rest, in order to have contentment. It's not dependent on those circumstances. I would suggest there's a tremendous amount of freedom in this if we would receive it, if we would believe this. The pursuit of better circumstances in order to find contentment is actually just a form of slavery because we will never arrive. If you love money, you will not be satisfied with money, Ecclesiastes says. Again, this is rooted in a lie and it's nothing more than just a never-ending cycle, a never-ending hamster wheel. And this truth here of contentment that transcends those circumstances invites you and me off of that wheel. Discontent is a heart matter first, not primarily a matter of circumstance. Secondly, Christian contentment is a mystery to be learned. Christian contentment is a mystery to be learned. As I said at the start, contentment is not natural to us. Rather, coveting, idolatry, these things are in our fallen nature. And Paul doesn't present contentment to us here as if this is something that he just downloaded or was downloaded to him the moment that he was converted. That's not how he speaks of contentment here. Rather, he says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. It is something Paul has had to learn and mature in. And I think this reality ought to be of some comfort to us as we wrestle with discontentment. We sometimes think if we don't possess something with absolute perfection, then we don't possess it at all. It's a zero-sum game. I'm, I have zero, you know, it's, it's all or nothing here. Or we think if we struggle with something, yeah, we, we don't have it anyway. I don't possess it at all. Well, that's not how this works. It's something that we grow in. Contentment is learned. It is not just immediately downloaded. Paul indicates this again in the middle of verse 12. He says, I, again, he repeats the idea of learning. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. The phrase learned the secret translates a single Greek word that isn't used anywhere else in the New Testament. It was, however, it has been used in mystery religions to speak of being initiated into the secrets of that religion. 
So you go through this initiation process, and then you are told on the other side the real secrets of this, of this religion. Paul is likely very consciously contrasting that use of the word with a Christian use of the word, with Christian contentment. Paul's use of this word, though, suggests two things. First, Paul has indeed undergone an initiation of sorts through which he has learned contentment. That is, he has learned through having seasons where he is well supplied. There are places in in Acts where we read of Paul and he just says, after staying there for two years, It'll just say how long they stayed in one place, and then it's just on to the next. And there's a whole gap of two whole years of his life. We don't really know. It's just a summary statement of what happened there. Those, maybe those are some of these seasons where he was well-fed and well-supplied. He knows that. But also, we know the Apostle Paul went through fierce trials. It seems to me that he knew more of the latter. He had been trained very much in the school of hard knocks. And he tells us about this, some of this experience in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 29. He talks about his various beatings, his imprisonments, his shipwrecks. It's always interesting to note how many of these things are in the plural form. He talks about being in danger from robbers, in danger from false teachers, He's been stoned just once, though, but he's been stoned one time along the way. So he'd experienced all of those tremendous difficulties, and he had also known the kindness and the love of his Christian brothers and sisters supporting him. He knew what it was to be well-supplied as well. He had faced all of these ups and downs of life, And he had learned through living these things, through experience, how to be content through it all. He was given opportunity to practice it, to learn it. So Paul has been initiated initiated into this understanding of contentment. Second, Paul's use of this word, seems to preserve also this idea that contentment is something of a mystery that isn't easily understood or even easily unlocked by us. So again, we shouldn't be surprised when we have battles with discontentment. So th- this, is, this is how, again, uh, Jeremiah Burroughs takes this use of this word as upholding this idea that there's some mystery to this. Christian contentment is indeed something of a mystery. It's a complex matter because it involves being sensible to misery, the misery of a situation, and yet being content even in the midst of a rather miserable situation. It can involve trying to better a bad situation and yet being content so long as that bad situation you're in lingers. It involves crying out to God in prayer for help, for mercy, to help alleviate the pain, to change this difficult situation, and yet resting content with God's answer and his timing. And this is not always a simple balance to have. We're not talking about just a simple numbness to everything that goes on in life. That's not how we operate as Christians. We... we, 
you'll notice again, Romans 8, when it talks about God uses all things for good, he doesn't call all things good. But he will use those things for good, right? He uses bad things, evil things, wicked things that occur, tragedies that occur. We don't have to call those good. We shouldn't call those things good. But we have the hope that God uses those things for our good ultimately. And so it is indeed something of a mystery how one can at the same time be sensible to the difficulties and pain and challenges and yet rest content and confident in the Lord. It is something that a carnal heart, as Burroughs points out, can't, can't really understand. Christian contentment is a mystery to be learned. It is something that we grow in. Paul had to learn it, and it is something that you and I will also have to learn. And God is faithful to give us opportunities to learn. You will have, you will be initiated into it. Paul taught after that one stoning that he received, and he went back to encourage the, the churches and the places where he had just suffered and been persecuted. And he encouraged them with the words that through many trials and tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So contentment comes by living and by experiencing ups and downs and learning. Not everyone's life, of course, is as dramatic as Paul's. But in a fallen world, we will experience both joy and misery, pleasure and pain. And so recognize that this is this contentment is something that is learned. And for the believer, contentment is not something that is optional for you. It is not a, hey, it'd be a little better if you were content than discontent. We're called, we're commanded to this. 1 Timothy 6, verse 6, we read earlier. But godliness with contentment is great gain. It would seem that godliness apart from contentment is a lesser sort. Contentment is good. It is part of godliness. It is part of trusting the Lord. It is part of thankfulness to Him. And so let us seek it. Let's pray for contentment. And let's practice it with patience even today. Christian contentment is a mystery to be learned. Thirdly, Christian contentment is attainable for the believer. Christian contentment is attainable for the believer. Again, while we know perfection is going to be out of reach this side of the Lord's coming, contentment is something that can be learned. It might be hard, but as we consider this, it's something we ought to be hopeful about. And Paul gives us here the key to his contentment in verse 13. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is not saying that Paul can just do whatever he puts his mind to, like leaping tall buildings or just free climbing a 2,000 foot cliff with zero practice because Christ is going to empower him or whatever. That's not what that's saying, of course. We've seen it used that way. I'm sure you've seen it used that way on posters or whatever it might be. But the all things he's referring to here are the any and every circumstance that he faces in life. He's saying that he can, 
endure these things with contentment. And he can do this through the one who will strengthen him. Almost certainly that's referring to the Lord Jesus. Paul was united to Christ by faith. Christ gave strength to Paul through his spirit and through his word such that Paul could endure difficulties. He could endure good things. He could endure trial without having a raging soul inside. Paul was convinced that whatever lie ahead for him, he can face it. Not because he's so great and masterful, but because of the one who strengthens him. So Paul's view of contentment was no stoic self-sufficiency. It is a Christian contentment. Using that word intentionally. Not just talking about contentment generically, but a Christian contentment. This word translated as content in this passage is the word autotarkes. Sorry, autarkes. It is not found elsewhere in the New Testament. But again, it is very commonly found outside of it, especially amongst Stoic philosophers. And what they advocated when they used this word was a self-sufficiency, a type of contentment that comes from insulating oneself from everything around you, from life's ups and downs, emotionally detaching from what is all around you so that if something does go wrong or tragedy strikes, you don't feel it as bad because you weren't really attached to it in the first place. And so you really just become this kind of island. You're self-sufficient. You're not dependent on anyone anything else. So if everything else blows up and is gone, I'm okay. That's how they viewed this. And Paul is using the word most certainly in a different way. To, the, to someone just looking in at Paul, they might, it might appear on the outside, on the surface, to be a self-sufficiency because Paul's contentment is not resting on other people or the circumstances around him. But in fact, what Paul is talking about is a sufficiency that comes from Christ who supplies the strength to him. So again, this is why we say this is a Christian contentment. There are other ways of facing difficulty and trial and finding some measure of placidness in and amongst life's pains and difficulties. But that's not the same thing that Paul is speaking of here. Further, as we've already said, Christian contentment is still sensible to the pain. It is still aware of great evil or tragedy or whatever else could, could occur. It is not that I can face whatever comes because it, I don't really care about those things or it's not, I'm just self-sufficient rock. Rather, it is I can face great difficulty with contentment because I am united to my Lord who is my sufficiency. He is with me to strengthen me. That's a very different thing. This is why it is, it is complicated. I say it's something of a mystery because we of all people understand what love is and what evil is and, and, and experience the aggravation when, when, when evil occurs and abounds. Uh, it's not something we get to just stand completely aloof from. And yet we are called to contentment nevertheless. 
Also, let's not forget Paul's rejoicing that we see throughout Philippians. And he raised again in verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that you've revived your concern for me. Paul's not just fatalistic about these things either. Some people approach it that way. Well, there's nothing I can do about it, so just just got to try and move on. He actually knows joy while he's in prison. So when you, when you find yourself in a situation, it could be of abundance or need, and you're tempted to think, I can't be satisfied unless, fill in the blank, occurs. I can't be content unless that happens. Or if you're tempted to justify your discontentment, and we do, we're good at that too. We're discontent, but mine is valid. We need to remember this verse. Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. If ever that's rightly applied, it is, in with, is with that battle of contentment. It's dealing with your circumstances. Does God tempt you beyond what you can bear? 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says he does not. So if you, that, that burning sense of I need something in order to be content and satisfied, it's a lie. It's not in line with scripture. And again, I just say again, we're not making light of trial and difficulty. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Now Paul simply states here that he can know contentment through the one who strengthens him. He says it's possible, it's it's attainable. He's experiencing this, he's living this. We might think, well, that is certainly nice, but how do I do this now if I'm struggling with it? He doesn't give us here just the three steps and it'll happen. We know that it has to be learned. We know it is possible to attain through Christ Jesus. But what else can we do if we're struggling with it? Well, I would say we need to remember the larger context here of these verses. The situation the Philippians faced and the anxiety that they were experiencing is probably all tied to to this lack of contentment that they're experiencing. A lack of a quiet spirit in the face of all this that's going on. And so we remember the instructions that he's already given. Putting off anxiety, instead pouring out to the Lord in prayer with thanksgiving And his peace will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, he says. We then seek to think about that which is true and honorable. That which is right and just and so on. That is, we are to set our minds upon and meditate upon that which is good. So if we want to put off discontentment, we want to put off covetousness, let's put on thinking about that which is good, thinking about truth. So let's consider a few of those. If God is indeed sovereign over all things, if all good gifts are ultimately from him, then he has given to you precisely what he desires to give you in this moment and 
Moreover, he has withheld from you that which you do not possess. And he has his reasons. And we affirm, of course, his ways are good. He is to be trusted in these times. Moreover, we know that the Lord has promised for those in Christ to never leave you nor forsake you. Circumstances sometimes would suggest to us, maybe he's forsaken me. Maybe he's against me because look at what's happening. But we see throughout the scriptures, God is faithful to his promises. He is faithful to his word. And he has promised you in his word not to leave you nor forsake you. He has promised in his word to turn those things, to work those things that are unpleasant to you for your good. We know the scriptures tell us it is better to give than to receive. Generosity is virtuous. Often we're focused upon the things that I desire, need, and lack and do not have. The Bible turns our attention to generosity, to giving. Moreover, you are called to steward what you do have, not what you don't have. So we ask questions like, how can I use the things I do have, such as they are, the, the, the resources I do have, in a way that would honor the Lord? How to be faithful with even little, if it, it may well be little. Thankfulness. Thankfulness comes up over and over through scriptures. We saw it back when we were to pray in our anxiety with thanksgiving and how that almost... Uh, Seems out of place, the way it's just thrown in there. Of course, in our anxiety, we're going to dump all of our anxious things and thoughts to God and ask for help with that. But with thanksgiving, reorients our, our minds to the things that we have to be thankful for from our God. And of course, if we think about matters of eternity and we think about the gospel... This will further help us in our struggle with discontentment. Is it true that your sins make you deserving of God's eternal wrath? The Bible says that's true. Do you believe that? Has God instead put away those sins forever, granting you full and free pardon? Has he graciously revealed to you his son such that you have acknowledged your guilt, your sins, and you are seeking refuge in Christ alone as your hope of salvation and eternal life? Has the eternal son of God, eternal son of God, come to earth as a man to take up your cause? Has he satisfied God's wrath against you for your sins By dying in your place? Has he risen from death in victory? And is his righteousness now yours by faith as a gracious gift from God? Do you possess now as his child an eternal inheritance waiting for you in heaven? Is the same Lord who died for you returning one day to consummate his eternal kingdom and to raise you in glory to dwell with him forever? If you have confessed your sins to God, 
and you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, then the answer to all of those questions is yes. And so I ask you, has God wronged you by withholding something from you that you would desire? The answer is obviously no. In fact, consider what kindness he has shown you. Even if things have not all worked out as you would have liked them to work out. Even if you face genuine, maybe even a crippling season. In light of what God could have done by just ending your life and sending you to hell to punish for your sins, consider the blessings he has given you instead. The spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus and, let's be honest, so much more than that. Again, just to be clear, I'm not making light of of anyone's trials, but this is the mystery of Christian contentment. It transcends circumstances, acknowledging that our God is ultimately the one who is in control and that his ultimate and final purposes are what will come to pass and, and they're good and he intends ultimately good to you. And so we can rest in this though there are many things that are outside of our full comprehension. And if we think back to our time in Ecclesiastes, a year ago we were there, I mean, so much of that book is, is teaching this. It is about really being content and grateful for the things that God has provided and given to us, even acknowledging all of the unknowns in this fallen world. The blessings we have in Christ Jesus, they're so sure and certain that even even if we lose our lives, the Bible speaks of that as ultimately gaining. We will gain our lives. So it is the duty, the glory, and excellence of a Christian to mature in this area of contentment. And it is good and it is freeing. So I just want to close by repeating the definition from Burroughs that I started with. It says, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Let's pray. Father, there's not a person here who doesn't experience murmuring in the soul, a disquieted spirit when things do not go as planned, when we lack. And Father, even when we are so well supplied, we're still disquieted. We still desire more. We still don't sit at ease. Father, we've all known this and experienced this. And I pray that you would indeed 
continue to teach us contentment through these things. Father, make us a grateful people. Forgive our, our sins in this area, Father, and in every other. You have indeed been very good to us. You have supplied much for us. We have places to live, beds to sleep in. We eat food, Father, and then some. So we we thank you. We praise you for supplying these things to us. We know that ultimately you are the one in control of all of these things. And so we continue to look to you to supply our needs for tomorrow. And Father, for everybody here who is wrestling with genuinely difficult circumstances and is wrestling with contentment over whatever it might be, even if it seems like a silly thing, Father, I pray that you would grant us grace, that your word would take effect in our soul, and the power of your spirit would be at work to sanctify us, to draw our affections off of stuff and onto you, that we might find our sufficiency in you, And while we look at certain difficulties that could occur and we wonder how we could possibly find contentment in those things if it were to come to pass, we see the words of Paul who said he can do all things through the one who strengthens him. And so we look to you to strengthen us. We are weak, we are aware of that, and we need your help. Father, so so teach us. Do not waste any of our pain, any of our difficulties, Father, for those who are in a season of great abundance, I pray too for them that you would grant them contentment. That their hearts would would rest in you and in the truths of your word. God, make us generous people. I thank you for the generosity that is in our midst. Continue to make us generous people. To be willing to, to help our brothers and sisters, when needs arise. Father, we, we thank you for all that you have, have given to us. We pray all these things together in the name of Jesus. Amen.